Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Elizabeth Keto, and I'm a PhD student in the History of Art at Yale University. Today, I'm delighted to join Alicia Gruyon and Chloe Bass for a conversation about art, pedagogy, and environmental justice. Alicia Gruyon is an artist, author, curator, and activist based in New York City. She's an organizer of the People's Cultural Plan and the Legislative Art Project Percent for Green, and her work has been shown at the Eighth Floor, the Bronx Museum of the Arts, Brick House for Arts and Media, and elsewhere. She's an adjunct professor at the School of Visual Arts in Queens College, City University of New York. Chloe Bass is an artist and public practitioner working across a variety of media and forms. Her work has been shown at the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Kitchen, the Brooklyn Museum, and elsewhere. She's an assistant professor of art at Queens College, where she co-runs Social Practice Queens, an experimental pedagogical platform that seeks to integrate studio art with research, community collaboration, and environmental justice. It's a pleasure to speak with you both today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for the invitation. So I wanted to start off um, just by asking if each of you could introduce your practice and perhaps speak a little bit about what you're currently working on. I am an interdisciplinary artist and I work with performance art, photography, video, and social practice art. Um, and a lot of the implementations of my projects occur within reenactments or interventions, self-portraiture, or printed material sometimes. And they often border between um, the stage and the documentary. Um, they all examine the politics of presence and in matters of history and activism, place and climate. So right now, I am working on several different things, but there's one ongoing piece that'll end in March of 2021, and it's um, a group of self-portraits titled from, from March to June, At Home with Essential Workers, and that's currently up at the Bronx Museum of the Arts. And I'm also starting work as the Willentis Fellow um, at Moore College of Art and Design. And um, this is Chloe, uh, just because we didn't introduce ourselves by voice initially. Um, didn't. We didn't. So hi, now you know this is Chloe's voice. Um, so I, actually something that Alicia and I have in common, other than that we have worked together before, is that uh, we both come from a theatrical background originally. And so I have been doing work that comes out of theater and performance traditions, but has crossed over into event-based work, uh, social practice, and the fine arts. So I currently have an exhibition that's still on view in Harlem St. Nicholas Park called Wayfinding, which is um, produced by the Studio Museum in Harlem. And it's uh, 24 commissioned site-specific sculptures and an associated audio guide um, that Alicia appears as part of. Um, her voice appears. I guess you can't see her, but you can hear her. And um, generally, my work is focused on increasing scales of human intimacy. So I began, I have kind of like a social science brain, although no social science background um, educationally. And so I began sort of thinking about what is just the intimacy between a person and themselves, a project that I did for two years called the Bureau of Self-Recognition. Then I spent about three years doing a series of eight intersecting um, 
studio practice and social practice and performance projects called the Book of Everyday Instruction, which is about one-on-one -on -one intimacy. And right now, all of the work that I'm doing, including wayfinding, is under the larger project title, Obligation to Others Holds Me in My Place, which is a study of intimacy at the scale of the immediate family. But it also extends to ideas of like, is a city, is living together in a metropolis a way of being a family? What are sort of some of the other ways that we can think about family? Um, and I am currently a Mellon faculty co-lead at the Center for the Humanities at CUNY Graduate Center. So I'm still working with social practice Queens and Queens College, but I also will be spending the next two years focused on my own research and practice, which is great. Great, thank you. I'd love to talk a little bit about your collaboration on wayfinding this project that unites so many ideas around environments and the division of public and private spaces. I was wondering if you could talk about how that collaboration came about. I'm gonna, Chloe, it's your project, so. I think you probably. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so, you know, like the, the true story is uh, there are a lot of artists that I know and admire, but um, there's also a few artists that I love the sound of their voice. <laughs> and both Alicia and Jeremy Toussaint Baptiste, who are the two voices on Wayfinding besides my voice, are two really brilliant artists that I love to work with in other contexts, but I honestly picked them to work with in this context because I love how they sound. <laughs> um, and Alicia has uh, read text for me before in a different context, but I knew also that I could sort of have her speak from the perspective of an institutional voice, which is the role that she plays on the Wayfinding Audio Guide. And honestly, like what I'm gonna throw to you, Alicia, is like the reason that that was, was because remember when we talked about how you were teaching the Korean business people English, mm -hmm. like business and institutional English. And that was a story that stuck with me so strongly in terms of the way that you understand language and the ways that people use language. That's really interesting. You hadn't told me that before. Um, Chloe just said, hey, I want you to do the voiceover for a piece of mine. I was like, okay. And I just loved the project as she described it to me. So um, it was very, very great to be on a, in a project as, as a performer. Um, not that I'm not, but anyhow. Yeah, I think for me, it was also interesting because I was filling a role that I'm like trained to do, but don't do anymore, which is, you know, you were trained to be an actor and I was trained to be a director of the theater actually at Yale. Um, and, you know, it's not a practice that I draw from very often in a, in a clear way. It's something that I draw from in an indirect way all the time, but just having the chance to direct my two friends, one of whom has an acting background and the other of whom has a musical background, was a really interesting way to put together this audio guide in my other friend Dave's very hot apartment because we had to turn off all the fans so they wouldn't corrupt the recording. Well, well, that brings us kind of in some ways right back to the idea of climate and the idea of environment and kind of the embeddedness of all of these practices in an environmental context in a way. And I was wondering kind of how, when you're thinking about your work and performance, how are you sort of thinking about it in that embedded entangled sense? I mean, I think for me, when I think about environment, it's 
You know, we haven't specifically, Alicia and I talked about the environment like a lot, actually. We've talked about sort of like cultural landscape and we've talked about climate change and we've talked about New York City. We're both native New Yorkers. But like, I don't know that we've ever specifically used the word environment together. So when I, in my own work, think about ideas of environment, I'm really thinking about like, how do the interpersonal relationships that we have affect the way that we treat the world around us? Um, and I don't just mean that in a very kind of touchy-feely caring way, but also like what about dynamics of human intimacy are used to enact laws, for example, things that we think of as non-emotional. What about dynamics of human intimacy allow or encourage us to feel like we have the need or the ability to step up or step back in different contexts, what is kind of a thing that like causes us to maybe abscond from responsibility because of intimacy actually, not because of a lack of it. Um, so I think about really environment as I think about all things as sort of deeply tied with like irrational emotionality, even though it has very real, very tangible results that certainly impact some people more quickly than others. Um, and yeah, Alicia, I don't know, I'm curious, like when you hear the word environment specifically, like what, what does that mean for you in your work? I think when I think of the word environment, I, um, it affects us nonetheless and being part of this world um, and the decisions that we make are inevitably going to have an impact in whatever environment we're in, whether that is the physical, a, a, a physical action like throwing a ball. What is it going to hit? Where is it going to land? There is that consequence. Um, whether it's a thought, um, and, and where does that thought take us to a series of actions into the future? All that inevitably will affect the environment that we are in. I mean, and I think of my work, when I think of the environment, I will also consider history and, um, and because decolonial practices interest me and the history of colonization interests me because it brought about the world in which my family and which I live in, um, I can't help but think of the environmental quote unquote damage that has been done is because of colonialism and the ramifications are not just on the land, but it's in our, our thought process and how we interact with one another. We're not really interacting as of yet completely on a human scale. We're not always seeing each other as human. We're seeing each other as a signification of something that's been brought about by and through the mechanisms of colonialism. And I think that if we're able to see each other in the same way that we see the, the environment, and I, I'm using air quotes, because the environment is, is not just, it includes the land, the earth, the water, the air, but it also includes the, the histories that um, past and present and future. Um, it's, it's all very much on, on a singular plane um, and constantly changing and constantly forming. So if we're able to 
regard the environment in that manner, we can also begin to regard each other on a, on a more, I guess, in a very manner of, of Sylvia Winter in, in, that, in that wholeness of, of humanity, of a human, and then, which is very bare, which is very raw, and, and I don't know, due to mass media, a variety of different factors, um, if we're there yet. But perhaps through the environment, we're able to achieve that recognition of seeing each other outside of these signifiers and maybe um, signifying some more complex, deeper commonality that we will have as, as human beings. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, one, one question that that kind of brings up for me as well is the question of kind of literal and figurative spaces in which we can encounter each other, spaces that are public or that are civic. And I was wondering kind of how, particularly in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, how are you thinking about what kind of spaces we need for collective imagining or for mutual encounter? On impulse right now, um, I think that it's allowing, for right now, it's just allowing other people to have the space that they need to be themselves in a way that is not damaging to another or to the world around them. And that's, we, we're not allowing ourselves that space to breathe, to live, to imagine, to grow old. We're not allowing ourselves that space. And um, whether it's because of police brutality, whether it is because we're overworked, whether it's because we're not allowed to live in a certain place for a certain amount of time because of real estate speculation. Um, and there are more reasons along that line as well. But I think that's one of the fundamental ways that we could start imagining spaces by allowing our allowing each other to um, to be um, and then something that I had thought of before is is how much our private space is becoming so much more public right it's due to these constraints of COVID that we're on zooms and skypes and we're in our homes and we're opening up this this you know you, you get you get a snapshot of what that person might be based on the image that you're looking at in Zoom. It's like, I love seeing um, Angela Davis on a Zoom. I love her background, right? There are all these books and it's really neat and I wanna sit there and it's not so office-y, slightly comfortable, um, but you know, you could spend a long time in, in her room. Um, but I mean, you know, is it set up that way? Is it really that way? But it's it's certainly um, we're certainly being allowed right now to enter these spaces where they would not have been um, open if it were not for these adjustments that we're having to make in order to continue communicating and in in order to continue allowing space for work to continue. Um, I don't know, Chloe. 
Yeah, I mean, as I was listening to that, like definitely one of my favorite Zooms from early on was one that was with Arundhati Roy at her home, I guess. I mean, I don't, she didn't say she was at home, but she looked like she was at home. So that's what I want to believe. And, you know, it's like she looked a little like kind of nuts in a nice way. Like she didn't sound nuts. She sounded brilliant, but her face looked a little like flustered and nuts and her hair was a little bit chaotic. And it's like, yeah, like I, if we're all going to be interacting with each other in these more private spheres, even if it's for a public presentation, I think sort of allowing for that seems good. Um, But the other thing that I was thinking about as you were talking is like, one thing in my work that I've really focused on is sort of the idea of giving people back access to or like the gift of themselves. Because I think that there's so much in the world that sort of assumes that we have deeper levels of self-understanding or self-awareness than most people actually do. And I can't change all of those structures, but I can kind of increase the level of self-understanding or self-awareness, even if it's uncomfortable through my work, so that when people then enter enter into some of those other structures in a broader way that require self-awareness, they can do it differently. Optimistically, maybe they can do it better, right? Because I think even, you know, ideas of empathy, which the world is so predicated on, like, presume that we have this deeper emotional awareness of what we are feeling and how that might map onto another person's feeling. Um, I, I, I question that <laughs> just based on like a lot of the behavior of people that I've seen in the world and sometimes even in my own behavior and lack of self-knowledge and frustration. Um, and so one of the things that I think I'm really focused on in terms of like civic engagement is really interrogating some of those underlying assumptions for rationality, for empathy, for understanding, for care, for clarity, and figuring out how they operate politically um, so that we can maybe get closer to what Alicia is calling like a decolonial mindset or practice or way of living and away from some of the really controlling structures that have been put into place based on very irrational emotions of people in power. I don't just mean now, I mean always. I think it's always been very emotional. Yeah, I guess um, I wanted to also talk about both of your work teaching and kind of your pedagogy and how that interacts with your broader practice um, and how you've looked at kind of community engagement and environmental justice as part of teaching. I think some of the best projects that um, well, let me back to, uh, backtrack a little bit. Um, in in I teach an introduction to socially to socially engaged art, and um, I think one of the easiest ways that students can start grasping the potential of social practice art, right? Because we're not dealing with an object. We're not dealing with anything that's really a commodity. We're dealing with an experience. We're dealing with a process. We're dealing with um, many metaphysical ways of interacting. And we are asking each other to be aware of, of these subtleties. And I think one of the, the, the most effective ways for me to communicate to students that that delicate process of 
of not just seeing, but also becoming an observer and then someone who, like an Augusto Ball would say, a, a spect actor, right? You're not just looking, you're actually involved in what is occurring, um, is, is through the environment and projects particularly that are directly addressing the land or food um, seem to be, and, and place, how to change place, your immediate environment. And I mean, the, the class that I teach has some art students and it has others that are not art students and it's um, open to, it's, it's a requirement, so it's open to all levels, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, so I find myself devoting some time specifically on, on the environment and environmental issues. And whether it's looking at a project like Percent for Green, where we created a bill with Bronx residents and it was modeled after Percent for Art, um, which would a percent for art allocates 1% of budgets receiving New York City funding um, to public art. So percent for green would do the same, um, although it wouldn't be, it would, it would also reflect um, different economic changes um, like inflation, which a percent for art doesn't. Um, but that 1% for green would go into sustainable and green initiatives in frontline communities that have long faced environmental racist um, policies and practices due to poor urban planning in, in large urban cities. And since I was born and grew up here in New York, um, I started with the Bronx. Um, so projects like that, but also we look at projects um, I mean, immediately what comes to mind, which is uh, with Swale by Mary Manley um, and, and that initiative to grow food and connecting with a community group in the Bronx to, to grow food on a barge and how to go over the loophole of not being allowed to grow food in a park and in park land. Uh, but you know, how do we how do we find these loopholes in order to let our imaginations out, but in order to also um, create suggestions that might improve the world we live in? I mean, that's a very it's a very basic beginning, but for students, it allows them to to understand the the range of possibilities. Um, so that how that, I mean it that's how it comes into to my teaching, other than like daily news, current events minute that we have before the start of each class because we can't ignore the world we're living in. Um, I don't think it's fair to the students or fair to art practice or particular to social practice art um, if, if we're not closely paying attention to and talking about what is occurring in our world. Yeah, I mean, I can second a lot of that. Um, the specific class at Queens that Alicia is teaching is a class that I also have taught before. And so many of those things I think sound familiar to me from my time teaching that class. Although also I think that like we each bring our own spin to it when we teach it, but I don't teach it now. 
Um, you know, recently what I've actually been teaching is primarily with our MFA students and I've been teaching performance and I've also been teaching writing. And so I'm sort of, although I'm teaching within a social practice context and mindset, um, I'm not actually teaching that same type of subject matter, but certainly in the performance class, because I focus a lot on public performance and elements of kind of what you could call performance studies approaches to bringing work from the visual art realm into the performance realm. Um, there is a lot of conversation around the larger environment of what's around us, understanding the world as a sort of construction or a set, understanding that the context in which you present something is incredibly informative, can be helpful understanding that you know you don't need to make something, that you can do it in the real thing. So for example, last year, a student wanted to do a performance about um, fare evasion in the New York City subway, which is something that certainly, like a lot of our students may need to jump the turnstile at one time or another just to come to school, right? And so it was on their mind that there was increased policing in the subway because that could certainly affect them at any point. Um, in a negative way. And, you know, this particular person had not worked in a performance context before. And she kept saying, I'm going to build a turnstile. I'm going to build a turnstile. And I said, or, right, we can go to the subway and you will do your performance there for whoever is there. And if you run into a risky situation, I will be there to say, this is for school. And I will try to take the responsibility for making it happen and whatever comes out of it. Because I think that not only is it better to use an existing turnstile, but also as soon as you present the work in that public context, other people see it. And it's informed by the other things that are already happening. The smell, the sound, onlookers, people who don't notice, like, whatever's going on in the background becomes part of the work and how you start to engage with and interpret the work. Um, so I think certainly in understanding, you know, like site specificity or like the larger environment of a place, you begin to really have a strong sense of what your work could potentially mean that carries with it a lot of responsibility that I think is good for an artist. Absolutely. I mean, and there's, kind of an ecology to that, the way that, as you said, the practice is embedded in the context as opposed to being about it, outside it, holding some kind of critical distance. Um, and one of the things I that comes up often in talking or thinking about kind of ecological practice is the issue of materials and production, as you were saying, and kind of how, how have you thought about the materials you use, the things or not things, that you produce? I don't make a lot of things. <laughs> I really don't. Like, uh, there's this question as wayfinding is coming down, like, where's it gonna go? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, and uh, so that's something I have to contend with. But you know, like up until now, I've been a pretty actively practicing artist, you know, showing and whatnot since like 2011, 2012. And all of the things that I have fit into one very small storage unit, like all of the actual objects. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I do that out of environmental consciousness specifically, although it's like a nice side effect, but certainly I've been trained to think about space as a New Yorker in a really small way. And like the cost of space is the single biggest financial downfall of our lives. I never thought that I could make any money as an artist and also maintain a lot of space for things. 
So the economy or like my desire to not be ruined by the economy is saving me there. But I also think that so many of the things that I do make or think through are really just translations of an experience. And so when I can make experiences that I can share directly, that's just as good, if not better. I mean, this is a moment I think that um, I start to think of my, my body. I think of my body first as my first material that I consider in making my artwork. And it does come from this, from the drama background and, and having your body be your, your very first instrument. Um, and then when I get into my thought tangents, it's almost inevitable that I start thinking about my body um, because it's so central to the subject matters that I'm interested in. Um, and it goes back to my body as being, you know, the signifier, you know, insert brown woman emoji and, and the particular signification that determines the status of other signifiers. Um, and like being acutely aware that any destabilization of my signification would destabilize so many others and disrupt so much meaning and, and that meaning that we hold within the context of, of Western European um, thought and most likely because of the effect it's had around the world further still. Um, and then on a very pragmatic, after I'm done with myself, on a very pragmatic level, it, any other materials that I consider for a project will be specific to place um, and where I am. And that always being a very active um, setting, you know, it's, it's my set. And, and integrating what I find there into what I'm doing um, to give me some foundation where I am. Um, and some of the things that you find are so accidental and, uh, and sometimes those accidental things are the most poignant. I think like so, so much of the time when we talk about the environment, we talk about this, you know, tricky word sustainability. And I guess like one thing that I want to say and then ask Alicia is like, when I say sustainability, I don't necessarily mean it always in the ecological sense, although also, but rather that there's a lot of forms of sustainability that we need to engage in physically, emotionally, economically, um, you know, uh, spatially, right? Like all these different forms of sustainability coming together. And so in that context, the question that I have that I can throw out or just leave on the table is like, what are kind of the hierarchies of sustainability in the ways that we work? And what are we really allowing to emerge as an ethics of sustainability through our work? Because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, I think that the limits of the English language come up when in situations like this, when we're thinking of sustainability um, in the English language and the marketability of sustainability as a product and how we can no longer hear that word without all these different images coming into our mind, many of them plastic, and I mean many of them plastic in, in the sense that they're very shallow. When, when, we're, when we talk about um, surviving 
and not just surviving at the bare minimal, but, but surviving um, and thriving. And then I often think of, of patience and how complex it is to actually talk about what we mean by sustainability, which is all these things. You know, we're not just sustaining an environment and economic system and structures that have inevitably been leading us to uh, a, a magnificent chaotic downfall. And I don't mean magnificent in any positive sense. This is, I mean, look around us right now in 2020. Um, not sustaining that, but how can we sustain the hope of more, and here's another word, progressive, or more transcendental, more life-giving, more radical imagining into a future that will hold us up, you know, insert sustain, um, something brighter and fairer and more just. And in all these words, I find myself almost not being able to bring them and talk about them because they're so tainted. Um, that I think that the patience comes in and, and allowing us again space to express what we mean by sustainability. So perhaps it, it is like asking like, what do you consider sustainability? Um, maybe it's just that that question and answer to get to to the bottom of it because it's um, yeah we're 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 suffering from the from the limits of of advertisement and, and English language. Yeah, in any context, it's easy to say language fails, right? That's language kind of why fails. I'm interested in it, but it definitely fails. Well, verbal word language, right? What we, when we're referring to dictionary, because what then what kind of language are we referring to? Totally. Is it, you know, um, and that that's a fun rabbit hole to go down. Um, and I think considering both our backgrounds, it's certainly, um, I mean, I think when I speak to you and I talk about language, perhaps it is because of our theatrical, you know, parenthetical checkered past that <laughs> we understand that language is not just the, the spoken word, but it is also, it's also the gesture. It's also what's implied. It's also what is not occurring. I think that's a lovely place to end kind of what's not occurring. And <laughs> leave it to people to hopefully and imagine the podcast will be about failure <laughs> I, I think that would be an excellent podcast <laughs> and necessary um well thank you so so much for joining me and for being willing to have this conversation and of course i'm mindful over zoom inviting me into your homes virtually that's a big ask and thank you